0: a woman of no distinction, of little importance. I am a woman of no reputation, and save that which is bad. You pass by me and cast judgmental glances, though you don't really take the time to look at me or even get to know me. For to be known is to be loved, and to be loved is to be known. Otherwise, what's the point in doing either one of them in the first place? to be known, I want someone to look at my face and not just see two eyes, a nose, a mouth, and two ears, but to see all that I am and could be, all my hopes, loves, and fears. But that's too much to hope for, to wish for, to pray for, so I don't. Not anymore. Now I keep to myself, and by that I mean the pain that keeps me inside my own private jail, the pain that's brought me here at midday to this well to ask for a drink is no big request but to ask it of me a woman, unclean ashamed, used and abused, an outcast a failure, a disappointment a sinner no drink passing from these hands to your lips could ever be refreshing, only condemning as I'm sure you condemn me now but you don't You're a man of no distinction, though of the utmost importance, a man with little reputation, at least so far. You whisper and tell me to my face what all of those glances have been about. You take the time to really look at me, but you don't need to get to know me. For to be known is to be loved, and to be loved is to be known and you. Actually know me, all of me and everything about me, every thought inside and hair on top of my head, every hurt stored up, every hope, every dread. My past and my future, all I am and could be, you tell me everything you tell me about me. And that which is spoken by another would bring hate and condemnation with coming from you brings love, mercy, grace, hope, and salvation. Heard of one to come who could save a wretch like me, and here in my presence, you say, I am he. For to be known is to be loved, and to be loved is to be known, and I just met you, but I love you. I don't know you, but I want to get to. Let me run back to town. This is way too much for me. There are others, brothers, sisters, lovers, haters, the good and the bad, sinners and saints, who should hear what you've told me, who should see what you show me, who should taste what you gave me, who should feel how you forgave me. For to be known is to be loved, and to be loved is to be known, and they need this too. We all do need this for our own.
1: reading is from John 4, 1 to 30, and 39 to 42 from the ESV. Now, when Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John, although Jesus himself did not baptize, but only his disciples, he left Judea and departed again for Galilee, and he had to pass through Samaria. So he came to a town of Samaria called Sychar, near the field that Jacob had given to his son Joseph. For the Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, Give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. The woman said to him, Sir, you have nothing to draw water with and the well is deep. Where do you get that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob? so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. Jesus said to her, go, call your husband and come here. The woman answered him, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, you are right in saying I have no husband. For you have had five husbands and the one you now have is not your husband. What you have said is true. The woman said to him, sir, I perceive you as a, you are a prophet. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain But you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know. For salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshippers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. The woman said to him, I know that Messiah is coming, he who is called Christ. When he comes, he will tell us all things. Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. Just then his disciples came back. They marveled that he was talking with a woman, but no one said, what do you seek or why are you talking with her? So the woman left her water jar and went away into town and said to the people, Come, see a man who told me all I ever did. Can this be the Christ? They went out of the town and were coming to him. Many Samaritans from that town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. He told me all that I ever did. So when the Samaritans came to him, they asked him to stay with them. He stayed there two days and many more believed because of his word. They said to the woman, it is no longer because of what you said that we believe, for we have heard for ourselves, and we know that this indeed is the Savior of the world.
2: Is that on? Great. Can you hear me? Ali, thank you for reading that text so well. And... Um, What a powerful little video clip beforehand. I don't know how that hit you, but that hit me pretty hard um, when I saw that. And um, there's not much left for me to say after all that. So let's pray and then look at that text together. To be known is to be loved, and to be loved is to be known. Our Father in heaven, like the woman at the well, we too are thirsty for living water by the power of your spirit, awaken that thirst in us that we can be quenched by Jesus alone. In whose name we pray, amen. All right, so my purpose here is to take you through a part of that text this morning. And um, I can see without that, that's remarkable. The writer of this gospel, John, for those of you who have your Bibles here, only records 21 days in uh, the very long ministry of Jesus, the three years of ministry, and his selection is choice. And uh, as he puts it himself in chapter 20, and you can go read this later, he said, Many other miraculous signs Jesus did which are not recorded in this book, but these have been written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. And I think as a result, we tend to romanticize or idealize John's selection. And this story is actually an apt example. The reality is actually not a very good picture. It's not a pretty picture at all. In fact, it's shocking and it's subversive. Jesus is found in broad daylight in conversation with a woman of obvious disrepute. I mean, at best, she's a serial monogamist. At worst, she's a prostitute in broad daylight, Jesus. He's a Jew. She's a Samaritan. He's a rabbi. She's immoral and even an outcast amongst her own people. That's why she's there at noon. So, friends, in a religious and a shame culture loaded with racial prejudice, instead of looking the other way and walking away like hiding his face in embarrassment, walking off, Jesus, the privileged and the pure, initiates instead an encounter with the unclean and the defiled. It's beautiful, but the optics are not good. Do you understand what I'm saying? It doesn't look good. Years ago, (laughs) when I was a student in Canada, I was in a seminar, um, with um, the very well-known Dr. J.R. Packer, and in one of these seminars, he opened the room. He didn't look at any of us, and he walked straight across the room to the only woman who was in our class at that point. So we're all looking at this, right? And then he knelt down next to her, right next to her seat, and he took her hand and he started stroking her hand, right? And he started whispering to her. Now you imagine—we're all guys. We're looking at him, going like, "Oh crumbs!" You know, do I really want to be here when Jim Packer is found out, you know, having had an affair with this woman? And uh, and he has this long, intimate conversation with her, and he gets up and he sits down, and we go on with the rest of the class. Of course, afterwards, we discover the husband had died uh, in the week before, her estranged husband, and he had come to give her condolences. Absolutely extraordinary. Extraordinary event. But the optics... Not so good. And in a similar way, when the disciples come back and they stumble on the scene, um, they're astonished or they marveled at it. This is sort of John's euphemistic way of saying they were basically shocked, speechless, right? They don't know what to say. They're like, oh, crumbs, what do we say? This does not look good, okay? In other words, what Jesus had done was something very, very powerfully countercultural, outside the box, but Beautiful. And earlier in the passage, if you do have it in front of you, you'll see that John had actually said that Jesus had to go via Samaria. He didn't have to go that way. He could have gone another way. But John's suggesting that Jesus had a divine appointment with this woman. And it's conspicuous in the telling of the gospel. And if you read it carefully, you'll see it. In actual fact, if you read back a little bit in John chapter 3, you'll see Jesus having had another divine appointment in a very, very different setting, in stark contrast to this one. His previous divine appointment was not in a rural village, somewhere outside there, unclean, but right by the temple in beautiful Jerusalem. Not with a woman of mixed blood, and therefore basically irredeemable, but with a very prestigious and aristocratic and noble-blooded Jew, Nicodemus. And so John contrasts these stories very powerfully. So this is a remarkable encounter. It is actually a signal from God that God is willing to pour out his spirit on the low and the meek, the lowly and the meek, and that he will find those people who have been forgotten and damaged and discarded. It's absolutely beautiful, friends. It's a beautiful story. It's absolutely amazing. This is the God we worship. This is the God we worship. So let me backtrack briefly and just pick up the story in the beginning, and I'm not going to keep you long. In the beginning of the chapter, we find Jesus and his friends heading off to Galilee. And the reason they're heading off to Galilee is because of all these baptisms. We've just been doing... (laughs) showing this video, (laughs) pictures of all the baptisms. So all these baptisms were happening, and it looks like the Pharisees are beginning to investigate the whole setting. And so Jesus decides, well, let's cool down this business, and we go up north, and they travel via Samaria. Now, most of you know who the Samarians were. The Samarians were the result of the intermarriage of the Israelites and the Assyrians during the northern exile of the kingdom. And so the Samaritans were therefore an interbred race. But they claimed their own ancestry back to Jacob. and And so the Jews were very irritated with these people. Not only were they impure in their eyes, but they actually saw the Samaritans as an impediment, as an obstacle for the kingdom of God to come. They saw the Samaritans as standing in the way of the Messiah. Why? Because they lived at Jacob's well. Because of the land because of the occupation. Does that bring bells to you? Warning bells, right? Lots of contemporary warning bells. And um, and so they are very angry with the Samaritans. And this bit of background will actually help you to better understand the text if you go back and read it, because there's all sorts of things in there. But the deep, deep irony, therefore, is this, and John wants you to see this, that he just spent time with Nicodemus, right? The pure Jew, and Nicodemus doesn't get it. He gets it later, dark in the night. He sneaks off with with Joseph to go get the body. Right. But the Samaritan woman, the one who's an impediment to the reception of the Messiah, is the one who recognizes Jesus. Friends, this is powerful. And John wants you to get that, so don't miss it. So hiking for about six hours, they come around to this village of Sekhar and Jesus is tired. He sits down by the well. He's alone. The disciples have gone off and to the village to buy food. And the woman arrives and then Jesus talks to her. He asks for a drink. And it's at this point where the story becomes interesting. And I just want to show you this um, before you sort of begin to draw conclusions. Because what we have here is a classic case of double-layered conversation, sort of dual-meaning conversation. It's a beautiful conversation, but it's fabulous. So Jesus sort of speaks figuratively and heavenly language. She understands very earthly and literally and responds in literal terms. And then Jesus sort of answers again in a very sort of spiritual way, right, in a figurative way, and then she gets it only literally. Um, but the beauty of this is that Jesus speaks both heaven and earth. <laughs> he brings it together. And instead of being condescending towards a misunderstanding, he actually uses that conversation to draw her into a knowledge of himself. It's quite beautiful. And I've asked Devin just to put that text up for us from verse 9 to 15. And I'm going to show you that very briefly. So in verse 9, he asks her for, a, for water to drink. To which she really responds with the obvious, hey guy, this is an inappropriate request. Okay? (laughs) You shouldn't be talking to me, right? Even I know that. To which Jesus responds in verse 10 um, with a layered response. And he says, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. Can you see how Jesus has provoked this conversation? Now, the clue to the double meaning is obviously in that phrase, living water. And we've had it in a song just before. It's beautiful, actually. Living water, friends, literally means non-stagnant water. It means good water. If you live anywhere where there's not a lot of water, which is increasingly (laughs) where we live, right, You know, if you want to drink from a pool that's stagnant and muddy and murky and where all the bacteria is, right? You know you're going to get the runs, right? If that's your daily situation, that's an awful reality. So living water is good water. Living water is running water. Living water is water that you can really drink. Living water is like a fountain, like a river. Now, friends, if water is so important to your daily existence, we have no idea. But if this is your daily life, going to fetch water in a bucket, right? Having living water can make all the difference between life and living. It can be so symbolic of the whole situation of your life, right? It's indicative of everything. And so in verse 11, well, so in other words, she hears, she hears living water thinks good water. But Jesus, of course, means much, much more. And so she responds in verse 11, you don't even have a bucket. Dude, how are you going to give me the water? You don't have a bucket, right? This is Jacob's well. It's the deepest well in Israel. It's 100 feet deep. The good water, you need a bucket to get way down there if you need the good water. And so the puzzle in her mind is, who's this guy? Is he like Jacob? Is he like our father Jacob who gave us this water, who now somehow has the power within him to give me real water, to lift the burdens of my life, to change the situation in my life? Maybe he has that kind of power. And so in verse 13 and 14, Jesus responds more literally for the first time, even though she doesn't entirely get it yet. And he says to this water, even if I could get you the good water down there, will still leave you thirsty. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. That water I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling, gurgling, bubbling up to eternal life. What a powerful thing to say. Okay, Water. Water to quench your deepest thirst. A fountain that will gush up inside of you and will never die. You will never have to relentlessly look and search and find and struggle for that satisfaction that you could never get. So Jesus is actually also using powerful Old Testament imagery. Not only is living water a wonderful sign of life if you live in a desert place, right? Living water is also loaded with significant meaning of God one day coming to rescue his people. If you look at Isaiah, for example, Isaiah talks of a day when God is coming, a day in which there will be great joy, because that day God desert people will draw water from the wells of salvation. So deep imagery from there, from Zechariah and Ezekiel. Uh, They both speak of a day when living water will flow out of Jerusalem. And when you get right to the end of the Bible, there is the river, right, flowing. And so even though the meaning is cryptic and puzzling to the woman, it's enough for her. She wants it. (laughs) She doesn't quite know what it is, but she knows that she wants it. So somehow her thirst for water and her thirst for wholeness, her pursuit for wholeness, come together. And she knows that she wants it, her physical need. And his spiritual need somehow overlaps. And she realizes, this is what I need. And it is these two strands that Jesus then weaves together as the story unfolds. And that's why um, I asked Addie to read the whole story for us. And unfortunately, we can't look at the rest of it. That'll have to wait for another occasion. Because the story moves on. To those who are the worshipers of God in spirit and in truth. One of those perennial questions. What does it mean to worship God in spirit and in truth? And John is adamant that it is simply the recognition that Jesus is the source. That Jesus is the savior. And even the Samaritans get it. He's not just the savior of the Jews. He's the savior of the world. Right, it's so powerful. Okay. So what I want to do now, in the time remaining, is I want to pause, and I actually want to metaphorically just put us in the same situation as the woman. And what I'm doing here, I'm really borrowing from many others who've spoken on this passage. Spoken on this passage. This is not original with me. So the question I want to put before us then is what would our thoughts be were we the ones standing at the well? If we were to assess the situation of our lives, we could possibly say something like this. We could say to Jesus, you know, Jesus, the well of my troubles is very, very deep. It's good to have you here, right? Nice of you to be around. But let's face it, you don't have a bucket you can't draw the water for me, right? You really can't actually help me in my situation. My situation that I struggle with today is of such a nature that no abstract belief in Jesus is actually really going to remedy it, right? No abstract faith in God is actually going to make a real tangible difference today. So trust me, Jesus, it's not that I don't believe in the gospel, I'm just not convinced that it can help me in my particular problem. Does it sound familiar to you? And as a result, what we do is one of two things. So what I would do is i decide, look, I'm going to solve this problem myself then, right? Okay, and there I go. And uh, inevitably, I fail, and then I fall into blaming myself or someone else or some situation um, you know that whole thing about drinking poison and hoping someone else would die? You know, that kind of thing. Or, I give up. And I say to myself, you know what, JB, you're useless. Right? You're so useless. You know? And I retreat into self-pity. You know, the problem with both anger and self-pity is that they're both aspects of self-love. In both instances... What we want from Jesus is not Jesus. We want Jesus the empowerer for me, or Jesus the super empathizer for me. Jesus the comforter, or Jesus the enabler to do the things that I want to do. But one thing we really don't want in our lives is to have Jesus as our master and as our Lord. Let's face it. I want him on my terms and my conditions. And so my pride, which is at the bottom of all this, hinders me from getting help from Jesus. And I say to myself, you know what, JB, as long as you have the tiniest shred of self-dignity left, you are not really going to ask for help. That's our problem, friends. That's the human condition. This is where we stumble. This is where we fall. But the woman at the well is different. And friends, that's why she's so absolutely attractive to us. You cannot take your eyes off this woman in the gospel. You can't. Because she's already sought intimacy everywhere else. She didn't find it. right? She's already lost her self-respect. She's already lost her pride. She has nothing left within her. She's come to the end of herself already. She's ready, therefore, for living water. She has come to realize that she has a thirst that only God can quench. We have a lot to learn from Alcoholics Anonymous (laughs) as Christians. Can I tell you something about living water? Living water is, is an amazing thing. Living water is, is a powerful thing. I was just thinking about it and, I, and it just kind of tears came to my eyes. You know, I I know there's some people here from Namibia, you know. That have you been to Namibia? Most beautiful country on the earth by far. I lived in the desert for a year. And uh, and the most beautiful thing about Namibia is that is if you if you travel in the Namib-Naukluft Park, you go past the Quiver Canyon. But near Vintuk in the Komos Hochland is the origin of the Kuseb River. And the Kuseb River has to flow all the way down to the coast through the desert. Okay? Not only does it have to track the desert, but quite a bit of a ways along, and it's sort of 500 kilometers to the coast. These massive, gigantic sand dunes are migrating and have migrated right across the canyon and crushed the river. But you know what? That river dug away underground, under that sand, for 50 kilometers, it travels under the sand and it pops out right next to the ocean, right next to these gigantic sand dunes and right next to the ocean is this fresh water that comes out a place called Sandwich Harbor. It's utterly beautiful. It's amazing. Friends, you can throw a gazillion tons of sand On living water, you will not kill it. And then in contrast to that, we lived for many years on an island in Canada, a very, very wet island, okay, (laughs) where there's springs of water everywhere, in absolute contrast to Namibia, right? And no matter what piece of land you buy, there'll be some little spring popping up out of the rock. And beware you build on that spring, okay? I've seen guys throw meters of concrete on that spring to build a house on it, and you will never keep that spring down. That fountain will break that concrete. It will not give up. It'll find a way out. And friends, such is the spirit of the living God once he has a hold of you, right? There's no amount of sand or concrete that the life can toss upon the Spirit of God in your life that will quench it. That's the living water that Jesus can give. And so what Jesus is saying to those who have a thirst for God, whose throats are parched for life, who are willing to come to Him, He says, believe in me and I will give you that living water. And it will indwell you. And that living water will become in you a spring bubbling up to life all the way into eternal life. What a powerful, powerful message. What a powerful image for this woman at the well. And it will not be overcome. And friends, it's not an empty promise. It's not an irrelevant promise. It's not pie in the sky when you die. It is a real promise. Because neither death nor the grave could contain Jesus who made that promise. So let me bring this to a close. Most of you, I suspect this morning, have come to know that fountain. So this, you know that. I see the nodding heads. Yet even for some of you who know that, you still find yourself thirsty this morning. How's that? (laughs) How is that you thirsty this morning? Maybe it's because we've allowed ourselves to drink from other fountains, multiple sources of water, many, many other sources you found the source, but then the other sources come and they say, listen, I can give this to you. But none of them will actually quench your thirst. Listen to this powerful image from God through the prophet Jeremiah. He says, my people have committed two sins. They have forsaken me, the spring of living water. And they have dug their own cisterns, broken cisterns that cannot hold water. How many broken systems are there in your life, thinking you thinking that that's going to contain it? So, for you who know the fountain, Christ is calling you (laughs) to put behind those broken systems. Let go. Come back to the fountain. Come back to the fountain that is Christ alone. For others of you this morning, and there may really be some of you who are finding yourself irresistibly drawn to Jesus for the first time, okay, um, you know, that's an amazing thing. You know, the one thing about this story is that when you read it, you come to the conclusion that Jesus is an absolutely beautiful person, right? And, and I, know, I know that's not a male word, beautiful, but Jesus is Beautiful. He's absolutely gorgeous. He's beautiful. He's irresistibly beautiful as a human being. He's humble, but he's strong. He has the capacity and the joy within him to love the unlovely. He can do things that we just cannot do and he does it with such freedom and ease. He can embrace the despised and the needy and the helpless. He can love me. Jesus can love me and he can love you even though You and me know who we are. Now, if that's you, then pray this prayer with me this morning. Let's pray. To be known is to be loved, and to be loved is to be known. And you, Jesus, you know me. You actually know me, everything about me, every thought inside, every hair on top of my head, every hurt stored up, every hope, every dread, my past and my future, all I am and all I could be. You tell me everything. You tell me about me. Ah, oh, Lord. Son of God, you are ready to embrace us, Lord, we know that. And so our prayer is this morning that you would make us ready to embrace you for Christ's sake. Amen.